Welcome to the Basin Church Podcast. And as a church, our mission is to bring hope and wholeness through Jesus Christ. And no matter where you are and as you listen today, we hope that you find hope in Jesus and even move one step closer to being made whole. Have you ever been surprised? And if you were surprised, how did it go? Now, some of you like surprises. Some of you hate surprises, right? Love surprises, hate surprises. Now, those of you some, sometimes, too, when you're looking for um, kind of uh, results or you're looking for a decision to go one way, here's what you're looking for. Um, and if you're anything like me, here's what I tend to do. I always think the opposite direction. So if it, uh, I'm thinking this one way, thinking, 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 but, and then if it comes out this way, then I'm happy. But <clears throat> I don't get my hopes up, so I stay over here. Anybody like that? So you, you think, you're, I'm not hoping, oh, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't, right? <clears throat> and then what happens, you're like, yes, right? And they do this too for doctors. Like doctors will tell you the worst news, right? They'll tell you the worst news, and all of a sudden, oh, no, it's, it's really good news. And then it's like, oh, yes, okay, great. Um, so anyways, all that to say was I went into uh, marriage obviously having different ideas of what marriage is all about. Men and women completely have different ideas. But I had <clears throat> a different idea when I went into having children. Now, here's what I thought going in having children. I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to have all girls. And again, I'm okay with that. You know why? Because here's my thought. We're going to have five girls so we can have a basketball team. (laughs) Right? Silly, huh? Okay, so I'm going in. Okay, we're having five girls, basketball team. This is going to be great. Can't have a mix. So I go in. And, you know, Sarah, she gets pregnant first, and, and it's rough, uh, rough time. She labors, and then, you know, my firstborn does not want to come out of the womb. So you have to go through this whole process. She labors, labors, water breaks, and then we go into emergency C-section. Now, I wasn't surprised, right? So my firstborn comes out, yay, you have a girl, woo, yes, okay, great. So then comes the second child, and now we're prepared, okay? So Sarah's had a C-section. I know what's going to happen. I know what's happening. This is great. Uh, matter of fact, the doctor who is actually helping my wife, I actually played basketball with his son, which was not awkward for me, but was awkward for my wife. But anyway, so we go, and <clears throat> he says, okay, we're going to take your wife in. He's, he's walking me through this whole thing. We're going to take her in. We're going to set her down. We're going to make sure she's IV, and everything's ready, and the surgery's going to be great. And I'm like, okay, this is awesome. Now, he, you, there's your scrubs. you got to scrub up, and we'll call you in. And what I liked about this doctor, not only did I know him personally, but he would walk us through the entire process. So I get on my scrubs. I even take a picture of myself in these scrubs and this mask and stuff. And I walk in, and my wife's like this on the table, you know, strapped down with the IVs in. And, and I think it was oxygen or something on your mask. And I remember laying down at her head, and you can come in now. And, and I, we're sitting there, and, and the doctor... As they begin to do the surgery in the process, he goes, okay, here's what you're going to feel. Here's what we're doing next and, and this. And, and I remember him going, okay, now you're going to feel a little bit of pressure, Sarah. And I, and I feel, you know, kind of wince. And he walks us through this whole thing. And then baby comes out and he goes, it's a boy. And Sarah and I both in unison say, it's a boy? And he goes, yes, it's a boy. And I can't believe I said this. Here's what I said. Are you sure? (laughs) Yes, I'm positive, Joe. You want me to show you? 
it's a boy. And I'm like, are you serious? He's like, again, I'm serious, Joe. And he takes the little baby boy and he, you know, it's his C-section. He puts it over the thing and I'm like, oh my gosh, it is a boy. Like I was in complete shock, right? Because I go in what? I go in thinking that I'm going to have girls and I end up having five girls, right? That's what I'm thinking. And I end up getting a boy and I was completely surprised. And so when I got there, when we, then of course, then we know we, we don't have five kids, obviously, but again, we have another girl too coming, or I mean, excuse me, came, excuse me. So <clears throat> all that to say was I was surprised in the fact, and some, sometimes surprises reveal things that we're not expecting. And so I know maybe many of you in this place, it doesn't have to be a baby, but you've been surprised by someone or something. Like someone has maybe given you a surprise thank you, Maybe someone has given you a surprise gift and you felt awkward. Oh my gosh, what do I do? I got to get him a present now, right? And so we have this whole idea of surprise and it just kind of takes us and we're, we're taken back. We don't know what to do. And a lot of us, when it comes to relationships, we can get surprised too in relationships because it's called the honeymoon period, right? And we think people change. Man, my wife has changed. No, she hasn't. My husband's changed. No, he hasn't. My girlfriend said, no, she hasn't. Thing is, is the honeymoon's over. That honeymoon period where you're, you're just, oh, and so in love. And then you finally see their, their true colors. But we get surprised, right? You really see, I mean, I'm serious here. And you, and then you go and you see people and some people, they surprise you when they leave their job. Some people surprise you when they move. Some people surprise you when they tear, tear a, a relationship apart that you thought was rock solid. People get surprised all the time. And here's what happens, and here's the thing with surprises. Truly, everyone, when it comes to this, everything we do and say reveals who we are as a person. So you shouldn't be surprised. So individually, if someone surprises you, really you, should, you shouldn't be taken back by them. They're already giving you an, an inclination of who they are. right? What they, what they say and what they do it reveals the person. So you really should never be surprised by somebody. So think about that. Anything they do or their decisions they have made in the past or are going to make on a day-to-day basis, you know their goals. You know where they're headed. You know what's going on. You know exactly what they're thinking. And then what people say, you know where people stand. When people give you opinions, you know exactly who they are. You know exactly what they believe. You know exactly what's in their heart. You know all that. By what they say. So a person should not surprise you. But the truth of the matter is people do surprise us. And we kind of get shocked when they say something or do something that's out of the ordinary. But really it's tucked away down in their heart or they're thinking about it. So individually you have those surprises. But the, the other thing corporately that people get surprised on, and I run into people all the time, is church. People get surprised by the church. And when someone first comes to know Jesus, they come into church and they have their preconceived ideas what the church should be. They have the preconceived ideas what the pastor should be or what is like. And we go into church and we think, okay, this is going to be better. And most of us, that is completely right. You should walk into church and think the church is going to be different. And usually the church is different. But there are times throughout the course of history where the church is not given off such a great reputation. 
And when we walk in, sometimes people who, who have experienced God for the first time and they're coming to church, they're expecting stuff, and then they realize that it's not what it cracked up to be. And somebody says something or somebody sits where they're sitting or they get upset or they hurt their feelings. And, and many people, I, I can name a lot of people who have gone to church and they've had a bad church experience. Then the reason is, is because people are human. And anytime you have humans, there's going to be problems. See, and what you got to understand about the church is this. The church is made of, of imperfect people that are redeemed by a perfect God. Say that again. The church is made up of imperfect people who are redeemed by a perfect God. So you got to understand this, is that, look, I'm not perfect, but I'm redeemed by a perfect God. I might fail you. People might fail you. And individually we come, and, but we're surprised. But don't put us on a pedestal because I'm human. I deal with the same stuff you do. I deal with doubt. I deal with discouragement. I deal with depression. I deal with that stuff. So when, when, it, when it comes to the church things, you got to understand that there's problems in the church, but, but it doesn't have to be like that. It doesn't have to be like that. And matter of fact, it's not a new thing to the church in America today that there's problems. It's, actually, it happened years ago with the Apostle Paul. Because when you look at the New Testament, we're going to go here, you can turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5. And 1 Thessalonians 5, he's writing Scripture and Thessalonians is a letter. So he writes letters to Colossians. He writes letters to Philippians. He writes letters to um, Thessalonians and Ephesians, Galatians, and all these churches that he begins to build up. But guess what Paul does in these letters? He addresses imperfect people with issues. And so he wants to urge them to do something. He wants to say, okay, here's your problems. You've got this all wrong. Here's what culture says, and here's how you're behaving. And Corinthians, there's a lot of immorality going on in your city, but the church needs to be different. And so he would encourage them, he'd exhort them, he'd urge them to do something. So when you come to the church in Thessalonica, and in chapter 5, Paul begins to give this exhortation. And he's saying, I am urging the church at Thessalonica to do this one thing. But it's not just for that church. It is for you and, and I today. If you call yourself a Christ follower... If you call yourself a Christian, he's talking to you today. So we're going to start in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. And here's what it says. It says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and hope of salvation as a helmet. Now, in the previous verses up to, up to verse 7, what Paul is talking about to this church is he's talking about Night and day, sober and awake. And he refers to people who are in the darkness, people who are not in the light, they belong to the darkness, they are not sober, they're not vigilant. Okay, so for them, they are not awake. So he's talking to Christian, not Christians, non-believers, people who do not profess Jesus as Lord and Savior. He's saying that they are in the darkness. But now he comes to the point and he talks to the believers in the church of Thessalonica, and he says that his exhortation is based on Christ's position, right? And it means that they belong to the day and not to the darkness. That's why he says, but since we belong to the day. So we don't belong to the darkness, and he says this to them and to these believers, that we don't belong to the darkness, so what do we do? We put on the breastplate right, of faith and love. Now, 
he comes to, to this again. His favorite metaphor is talking about armor. And in this case, he's talking about armor. It's not the armor like he's talking in Ephesians, although he does use the breastplate of righteousness. Here he's talking about the breastplate of faith and love. Okay, so it's different. But here's the thing with Roman. They put on this breastplate, and it would cover your vital organs. Okay, so you put this on. It's off. It's uh, off uh, defensively. It would cover your vital organs. So if you got hit, the sword would not pierce and go through your armor. So when he says faith, he's saying he's saying this that that's what faith and love do. That they protect you. So faith protects you inwardly, and love protects you outwardly. And he's saying if a person believes in God, then he will love other people. That the two can't be separated. So when you put on the breastplate of, I want to say righteousness, but it's not, it's faith and love. When you put on this faith and love, he's saying they are not separated. But what they do is they equip the Christian, they equip the believer of Jesus to basically be sober, be vigilant, and be awake that when Christ comes back. So you're, you're putting on this faith and you're putting on this love that you're, you're, you have the trust of God, you have the love of, of your Christ, uh, love of Christ in you. So therefore, what he's saying is it's not defensive, it's offensive. So it's not going to ca- catch you off guard. So if you lack these two things, then you remain open. Right? So it, you're not protected, you're not awake, you're not seeing or um, being aware of when Jesus is going to come back. So faith, love, and hope, he talks about in Corinthians, he talks about them as preeminent graces. And at this point, when you look at the scripture, he says, we must not only be awake, we must be sober, we must be armed, watchful, and guarded. And what he means by guarded here is he means don't be caught off guard like a thief in the night. Right, everyone's caught off. If you get robbed at night, if you have someone come in your house and rob you, you are caught off guard. He's saying, don't let the Lord and what He's going to do and is coming back catch you off guard. Be sober, be vigilant, be awake, be be um, just aware of what's going to happen. So He does this with the breastplate of faith and love, and then He says this: that the man or woman is right when their head and their heart. Are right okay so your head is where all the thinking is the head is where the error is and it's it's what you're going to do right so i think something before i actually do it your heart he's saying your heart should be right so you don't sin because he says in proverbs the, the 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 person in proverbs 4 says that you need to guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life so everything flows out of your heart sin flows out of your heart what you say is out of your heart it's not a mouth problem it's a heart problem so he says you need to put on the helmet or the hope of salvation so you have faith and love right so i have faith in christ i have my love is professed to him i'm aware of what's going on in him coming back but now i'm going to put the hope of salvation on so i am going to put this on and it protects my thinking and from evil coming in and overwhelming me that is around in this world. So when you when you begin to look at this, here's what he's saying. Put on this, because when Christ comes, it's going to protect your mind. It's going to protect you from evil things that's happening around. And hope here 
is certainty. When he says hope of salvation, hope is certainty. Hope is not wishful thinking. So, now just think about this with me for a second. It's certainty, not wishful thinking. But a lot of us use hope as wishful thinking, don't we? Well, I hope I get that promotion. I hope she says yes. I hope my kids obey in public and don't embarrass me. Right? I hope that the surgery goes well. I hope we have enough money at the end of the month. See, you, you can put hope, and it's like we interchangeable, but really what you're saying is, I am wishfully thinking that the doctor knows what he do, he's doing and the surgery goes well. I'm hoping and wishfully thinking she will say yes and marry me. I'm wishfully thinking that my kids will obey me. See, but the biblical meaning of hope is not wishful thinking. He doesn't say faith is, is being wishful and hoping and that everything will line up. He says, no, in Hebrews it says, faith is assurance of what we have hoped for. So it is assurance and it's certainty. So when it comes to you putting on the hope of salvation, you can be certain of this, that again, that God will come back. And the reality is, is when you put on the salvation, it guards us from times, and I, I wrote this, persecution, temptation, weariness, and other dangers that come when you live in a hostile environment. Because if you're a believer, this is not your home. And you will face persecutions, you will face trials, you will face temptation, you will face hardships. But when you have the hope of salvation, you're assured this, that God will see you through those. And you know what else you have? You can be assured that he's going to come back one day and take you and you will live with him forever. So that's how we live. He says, I want you to live differently, uh, Thessalonians. I want you to live differently, church. And this is what I'm urging you to put on faith, faith in Jesus, your love in him, and put on the hope that you can be certain of salvation. And it's just not temporary, okay? But the, 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 the salvation is also assurance eternal that you can, you can live with Jesus forever. So with all of that, now he begins to take it a little bit step further. And he talks about it in verse 9. He, he begins to kind of give this whole other thought here. He says, we do this, and this is why we do this. Put on the breastplate. We put on the hope of salvation, the helmet. Because it says in verse 9, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the word here, he's introducing another reason why you and I need to prepare ourselves for the Lord coming back. And he says, it's God's intention that we don't feel the wrath that will come on earth at the day of the Lord, but we will have full salvation to you and to me when he comes back on the clouds. So you can be assured of that. So he says, I want you to prepare. I want you to be vigilant. I want you to wake. Wake up. Be sober because this is what's happening. And it, it refers that God will deliver you from the wrath. Now there's a whole theological thing and there's whole much to, to debate on that. I'm not going there. I'm just telling you what the Scripture says, that you're not destined to wrath. You're destined to salvation. So when you talk about salvation, again, it's temporal, but it's also you get to spend eternity with your Lord and Savior. So he says, I want you in the midst of this hostile environment, in the midst of the world that you are in, the daily reminder is, is I want you to have this mind in view, and I want you to have eternity in view. So you live as if eternity is coming. 
So make sure you're living differently. So then he, he continues in, in verse 10. So he says this. So he doesn't appoint us to suffer wrath. God does not appoint us to suffer wrath. Why? Because verse 10, he died for us so that when, whenever, whether we are awake or we are asleep, we may live together with him. Now he writes awake or asleep, alive or dead. Now there's two thoughts here. One thought is this, that the first is that you're either spiritually alert or you're spiritually lethargic. Okay? So you're either awake or you're lethargic. And he says that if so, the point is that Christians need to be assured that life is going to happen with Jesus. Whether you're awake, whether you're watchful or not, he's going to come back and he's going to take his bride, as, as it says, and he will take his bride and you will begin to spend eternity with Jesus. So live that and be awake, be mindful of that as you go throughout your day. Now, the second thought is this, that a believer in Jesus they have, they, is to be revealed, the hope in Jesus, and that you're going to share with Jesus. So what I mean by that is that he, no man, took Jesus' life. See, when I was in Israel a few, a few years ago, it was about 2000, yeah, well, that's a long time ago, 2008, 2009. It's right before uh, a presidential election 2008. And I remember going back there and we had a um, um, tourist guide and she was Jewish. And it's very separated back there. Like Jews cannot go into Arab territory and, and vice versa. They just don't want you to do that. And I remember we went to the place where Jesus was crucified and I remember seeing the, the, the tomb, and the tomb is still there, believe it or not. And we were there, and I remember her saying this on a side note to, to my dad. She says, well, we didn't kill Jesus. She goes, you know what she said? The Romans killed Jesus. We're innocent. I'm thinking, okay. But here's what, I, what I'm trying to say is, is, is people believe and they take responsibility for killing Jesus whether it's Rome or whether it's the Jews, the reality is, is no man killed Jesus. He offered himself up as a sacrifice. See, he, he took the place for you and I. He substituted for you and for me so that we have atonement through the sins that we are redeemed, right? I said imperfect people that are redeemed by a perfect God were redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And when he says this, he says that's why you need to do this. So for all of us, this is it's essential doctrine and it's foundational. He doesn't need to elaborate to the Thessalonians. They know that. Right? They know that Jesus gave up his life. And when he it doesn't matter what the thoughts are, the reality is this is that Christ died so you and I could have life. Okay? So he he died so that you and I could have life. And so he gives in this writing that we're going to live with him eternally and he talks about, you know, in the in the light of the second coming in the light of Christ coming, believers are supposed to be aware and I know it's kind of a little hard to, to imagine that or think that, but then he brings it back to his exhortation for you and I. So we have to live sober, we have to live awake, but here's what he says. In light of that, here's what he's urging you and me and the church, and it's in verse 11. He says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just in fact as you are doing. Now, sometimes we like to take Scripture and we take it apart from what he just said. 
And some people just kind of quote Scripture just to quote Scripture, and they really don't read it in the context of what he's saying. But here Paul is what he's saying is that because we need to be awake and sober and put on the breastplate and put on the helmet of salvation and be assured, certain that Christ is going to come back and that you need to live differently, he says, therefore, encourage. Now, anytime you, and I'm going to give you a hint here, anytime you read Paul and you read the Scripture, anything that Paul writes, anytime he says, therefore, you can just circle that and mark an arrow back to the previous verses. Because that's what he's saying. In light of what I just talked about, this is what I want you to do. So therefore, goes back and he says, therefore what? Encourage one another and build each other up. So Paul's encouragement and edification in this letter was not enough. So he's saying, I need to reemphasize it. What I need to do is I need to have constant repetition in the church. And so you need to constantly be doing this. And the Thessalonians were already doing this, but they needed to be reminded again and reemphasized saying this needs to be constant. Now, you need to take this truth. Don't forget to encourage one another and build each other up. Because again, Christ is going to come back. We live differently. And since we live differently, we encourage each other. There needs to be mutual encouragement among the church. So when he begins to uh, unpack this, he says, yeah, you're doing it, but I want you to continue to take this truth in your meetings. See, we get, this verse gives us some insight to the early church. And the early church is this, that they included every opportunity in their services for mutual edification among the believers. So the mutual encouragement and edification was a, ref, was a reference to the hope of Christ's return and especially what they needed. You might be going through a tough time. Well, let me encourage you. And I'm, the reason I'm going to encourage you, because guess what? It's only going to last for a short period of time because Jesus is coming back. Or, hey, you know what? You're going through a tough time. I want you to see an eternity in view. You can get through this because of who God is and what he can do. So they had this mutual encouragement, and they were doing it, but he says, I want you to continue doing it. And as he, he does this, he's saying that not only are you supposed to encourage, but you're supposed to build up. Now, think about this with me for a second. When we say build each other up, we usually mean say something nice to somebody and change their day. Right? Like, oh, you know, so-and-so's having a bad day. Well, guess what? You don't have this or it's not as bad as this or, hey, you know, and we try to make encouragement. Now, I'm lousy at this, but we try to transform people. We try to cheer them on. Look at what Paul is saying. Like, when... We build each other up. There's sometimes mental, like, oh, yeah, you know, life's not as bad, and, and I don't have, you know, or, or, yeah, I can get through this. So you have this mental encouragement, and it, it moves you mentally, and then it moves you physically. But what Paul is saying here, when he says encourage and build up, it's spiritually. So what he's saying is this. He's saying that to build someone up, it helps someone become spiritually strong and spiritually mature. It's not helping somebody, hey, I hope you have a great day. No, I'm encouraging you in the faith. And I want your faith to be strong. That's what he's saying. So in the church, in, in the church of Thessalonica, that's what they're doing. He says, don't forget that. And I think sometimes as, as believers, we forget that, don't we? It's a great reminder that all of us have problems. All of us are going through it. And someone doesn't need to go up to you. Like, for example, someone, if you're going through a tough time, no one needs to hear, you know, for God, all things work according to His plan and purpose. They all work for good. They don't need to hear that. 
They need to hear, you know what, I know you're going through a tough time, but remember, God is bigger than your problem. And I want to encourage you in your faith. Begin to seek him, begin to trust him, and I will seek and trust with you. See, and it does something to their spirit. Something happens, you begin to build someone up spiritually strong, and they, they start to mature in their faith. Like, I want your love to grow deep in the knowledge of God, despite what you're doing. So that's kind of the encouragement that he's talking about. Now, some of us are like, well, what do you say? Well, what does that mean for you and I? Well, here's what it means for you and I. It means this, that you have a job to do. See, here's the thing. He doesn't say, hey, pastor of Thessalonica Church, I want you to encourage. No, he doesn't say that at all. See, sometimes we think that everything is, is on to the pastor when ultimately it's on the church. And if, you're, if you believe in Jesus and you call yourself a Christ follower, then he's talking to you. He's talking to me. And here's what he says. You have the task of helping someone get spiritually strong. I don't know if I can do that. And what are you talking about? Well, let me, let me tell you this. I'll get to that in a second. The reason why I think we don't know and I think we, we shy away from encouraging people is this. First of all, the reality is, is we use our tongues differently than we should. We don't use our tongues to build up, do we? Matter of fact, I can guarantee you, if we sat down at lunch today after service and I said, hey, can you tell me something good someone said to you this week? It would take you a long time to get there. But if I said, hey, can you remember something negative somebody said to you this week? Come up like that. Because we tend to remember the negative over the positive. And as humans, we tend to put people down and tear people down and look at the negatives and the weaknesses instead of their strengths. And the problem is why we have a hard time encouraging people and encouraging them in their faith is because of our tongues. Because we tear people down, we talk about other people, and we don't encourage enough. And so as you begin to see this, that we need to be a part of the change. You need to be part of the change. And so he talks all about this, and he says, you know, faith and love, and this is all offensive, and this is what we need to do. But he comes down to the bottom line, and the bottom line is this, that encouraging and serving others reveals God's love to others. Again, encouraging and serving others reveals God's love towards others. So think about that. Encouraging what you say. Serving what you do. What you say and what you do reveals who you are. And it reveals who the church is. So now, Scripture talks about running a race. And it talks about that we are to run the race and, and, and get rid of some stuff. It also talks about that we are supposed to do life together and run together. Now, I just want to give you, as, as we're coming here, uh, wrapping it up, I, I want to tell you this, that we need to encourage others in their faith and encourage others as they run. And, and in 2016... In the Olympics, there was a great story of this, great picture of an American and a New Zealander who actually collided, and what transpired really shows encouragement and really shows what should happen more than just a race. And so in, uh, um, a New Zealand and a, and a U.S. athlete have been praised for embodying an Olympic spirit after they stopped to help each other after falling together midway through their race. New Zealand distance runner... And the U.S. runner were four laps from, excuse me, the end of the 5,000 meter in Rio when they collided. 
Hamlin, who is the New Zealander, bunched tightly in a mass of running women, stumbled and fell face forward, causing the U.S. competitor, who was running directly behind her, to hit the track as well, falling on her side of her body. As Hamblin lay in the fetal position, the U.S. athlete jumped up quickly and pulled the New Zealander to her feet. Moments later, after the two athletes started running again, the U.S. athlete began to falter. Her right leg injured as a result of the fall in severe pain. As she's in severe pain, she falls again, crouching on all fours on the Olympic track, and her face showing she was in pain. And suddenly there's this hand on my shoulder, <clears throat> like, get up, get up. We have to finish this. And that girl was the Olympic spirit for me. So Hamlet stopped running, turned to the, to the U.S., reaching with her with her two open arms, and saying, when I was down, I was like, what's happening? I'm on the ground. But again, there was this hand on my shoulder encouraging me to get going and moving forward. And when they looked back on Rio, it says this, speaking and speaking to a New Zealand radio host, Hamblin said for the moment of kindness wasn't what she expected and what she prepared for Rio. And the American thought, I fell and she came back and helped me up as well. And when they said, when I look back on Rio 2016, they said, I'm not going to remember where I finished. I'm going to remember my time. I'm not going to remember that, but I'll always remember that moment when the U.S. helped the New Zealander and the New Zealander helped the U.S. athlete. See, that is for you and I. That's what it needs to be like. We need to pick each other up like those athletes. One falls, put your hand on your shoulder, let's go. One goes down, give him your hand, let's go. And see, there needs to be mutual encouragement and edification in the church. And so what does that mean? It means we need to spur each other on in our faith. And I know it's not just going to come right away, but we need to spur each other on that we can do it and that the Lord wants to do something in and through our lives spiritually so we become spiritually strong. And here's what I, I, I wrote down, and it's so key. It says this, that believers don't need to hear something new all the time. We don't. Here's what you need to know. Need to know. You need to remind yourself of what you already know so you don't forget it. Let me say that again. Okay, I think it's so key. Believers do not need to be hearing something new all the time. But they often do need to be reminded of what they already know so they don't forget it. Now let me tell you how this plays out in my life and in yours, and I'll wrap it up here. I'm human like anybody else. There are times when I go through deep, dark times. There are times when I get frustrated in life. There are times when I doubt and when I question. And you're probably sitting here, are you kidding me? You're a pastor. But I'm human. And so I can tell you this, every time I've been down and I've been I've been questioning and doubting God and oh my gosh, what am I doing? And I want to give up on life. I've always had somebody come alongside of me, a friend, and here's what they said. Has God called you to give up on life? Well, I already know that. I already know that answer. Well, what's the answer? The answer is what? No, of course it's not. 
Right? It's something I already know, but sometimes I forget it. And the truth of the matter is, too, you forget things, too. When you're, you're in a uh, hard spot and you're in a time of difficult situation and you feel persecuted and you feel like there's no hope and there's no way out, you're like, yeah, I know God. I know he can be the lifter of my head. And I know that, you know, there's no temptation that, that um, is beyond man and he'll give me a way out. I know all this stuff. And I know he's my healer. But the fact of the matter is this, is we don't trust him and we forget the goodness of God. And sometimes we need someone to come alongside of us and, and remind us because we forget the goodness of God. And you forget what he's like. He is the healer. He is your shelter. He is your protector. He is the provider. But sometimes we forget that. And so as a church, as a believer, what I'm saying is, is we need to come alongside someone. If they're hurting, if they're in a situation, you need to remind them of who God is because they've forgotten him. And what he's like. And so when you begin to, to say that to someone, you know what? It increases their faith. You know what? You're right. I've got to go back and stand on the word of God and say, God is faithful. I got to go back and say, okay, he is my hope and he's my shelter. Oh, he is the lifter of my head. That if God is for me, nothing can be against me. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. So what I'm saying is this. If you're in a spot of no hope, be encouraged that God is the God of hope and that God wants to get you through whatever you're dealing with. Okay, so whatever's happening today, I want to encourage you to look to him and say, okay, God, I'm going to seek you wholeheartedly. I'm going to seek you and I'm going to continue to press in. And I trust you. And then there's some of you who might be here and you're figuring, you know, oh my gosh, I'm in a situation and it seems impossible. Here's what I want you to do. Look throughout the course of the Bible, and there are so many impossible situations where God shows up and makes possible. The Red Sea parts, are you joking me? He spits in the mud and the guy is healed, and he can, he can see. I want you to be reminded that whatever situation you're in today, that encourage you that the impossible, the, the impossible situation can be made right by a possible God. So be encouraged and continue to seek. Now, as for others of you, you're sitting here, you're going, well, that says nothing to pertain to me because I'm not in a situation. But it does. Because there's someone in your life today that you know who needs encouragement. And it's your job to go to them today and say, Holy Spirit, would you fill me with the words? Would you give me opportunities this week? Maybe somebody I don't know, somebody I do know. Holy Spirit, would you fill me today? Would you fill me this week? so that I can be encouragement and help someone grow in their faith. So if you're, you're probably in one of those three spots, and, and what's happening is I want to urge you to do that today. I want to encourage you the way Paul would encourage you. And see, it's easy to talk about encouragement. It's easy, but I'm telling you, I'm not good at it. And some of us are not good at it, and we'll walk out of this room and go, oh my gosh, that was really hard. But look, God is a God of possible. You might think it's hard, but with his power of his Holy Spirit, you can accomplish more than you could ever ask or even think. So, what do we do? We continue to encourage and serve one another because we want to reveal God's love to not only others around us, but to the world around us. So, go and continue to press in and may God speak to you and build your faith today. And may you build someone else's faith. Thanks for listening. And if you would like more information on our church or you'd like to visit us in person, you can go to basinchurch.org. And as always, we hope this content helps you on your faith journey.